everybody. This is Heidi St. John. Thanks for tuning in today to Off the Bench with Heidi St. John. You found me at my little corner of the internet. Today is Friday, April 2nd, and today I'm going to air part two of my interview with my friend, Pastor Phil Hopper. This is an awesome prophecy update. Stick around. I think you're going to be encouraged. have joined me today. Before I get started, I want to give a shout out to Beverly from Richmond, Virginia, who wrote in and said, thank you so much for all you do. Words can't express how valuable your ministry is in these days. I really appreciate uh, those of you who continue to support the ministry financially and through your prayers. You guys are helping us do the thing that God has asked us to do. I want to remind you that I'm going to be at the People's Church speaking for their Reignite Ladies Conference on April the 9th and 10th. So that's just one week away, you guys. It's going to be an awesome time of fellowship and worship. You can come out and meet me at the intersection of faith and culture, and let's reignite a passion for God's word together. All right, you guys, without any more announcements, I'm going to air part two of my interview with my friend, Pastor Phil Hopper from Lee Summit, Missouri, in progress. It's important. Yes. And I almost tell people, you know, my grandmother was a Bible teacher and she had focused on teaching revelation. And I grew up hearing her talk about eschatology and the second coming. And I'm telling you, if she was still alive right now, she'd be camping out in the front yard. <laughs> she'd be like, she'd be waiting for the trumpet. You know, that's how she, that's, that's how excited she would be because of what have seen happening around her. But this brings me to another question. So Laura, from Billings, Montana, wrote, how can people say that there are no more prophecies left to be fulfilled in order for Christ to return when the temple has not been built Mm -hmm. in Jerusalem yet? Yeah. So great question. And I think the simple answer is this, uh, to remember there are two stages to Christ's return. There is the rapture where he comes for his bride, for the church. And then there's the second coming, I believe seven years later, where he comes with his bride or with the church. So as far as the rapture goes, when he comes for his bride, Second uh, Thessalonians 4 says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the, and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall be forevermore with the Lord. He says, therefore comfort one another with these words. There is a generation clearly of Christians of the bride of Christ who will never feel the sting of death, that they will be alive when he comes for his bride. And in Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, at the twinkling of an eye, they will be caught up. And that's the the word we use as rapture, this catching away concept, where he says uh, the dead in Christ will go first. The graves are going to be open. And then in less than a millisecond, we're going to be caught up in the clouds, changed instantly from mortal to immortal. And so that's the rapture of the church. And biblically, there's no prophecy left that would keep that from happening. The Jews are back in the land. And clearly, remember, we're talking about a literal physical kingdom where Jesus, as the Jewish Messiah, will indeed establish this kingdom where Israel will be nation among nations. All right? This is what the Jews were looking for when he came. And so the Jews had to be in the land before the king could return. They've been in the land now 100 years. They've been a nation since 1948, miraculously reborn. And then in 1967, the last super sign Jesus gave, he said, and 
Luke 21:24, Jerusalem be trampled underfoot by Gentiles till the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. For 2,000 years, it's been the times of the Gentiles. God's prophetic clock stopped on that prophecy of Daniel 9, 24 through 27. They crucified their king. So temporarily, they lost the opportunity for the kingdom. And so God has turned his attention to the salvation of Gentiles, salvation of you and I, the non-Jews. And very soon, God's clock is going to start to tick. What's going to happen first? The rapture of the church. And Jesus said, here's the super sign to look for. The times of the Gentiles are coming to a close when Jerusalem is no longer trampled underfoot by Gentiles. The Jews were driven out of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. 135 A.D., the Romans passed a law legally driving the Jews out of the land of their forefathers. And legally, for 2,000 years, they could not return, which means the rapture couldn't happen. Uh, The Jews were not in the land. The people were not in the place. And so what happens just in the last century? Not only are Jews back in the place, but they have become a nation miraculously. But they still did not have Jerusalem. They didn't control Jerusalem. Even in 1948, when they became a nation again, it was not until 1967, the end of the Six Days War, that they rode back into Jerusalem for the first time in 2,000 years, a super sign out of the mouth of Jesus himself that the times of the Gentiles are being fulfilled. So, biblically speaking, nothing since 1967 has been left to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church. Now, before Jesus can come again, what we call the second coming, distinct from the rapture, this listener is right. The temple has to be rebuilt. And we know it'll be rebuilt because Daniel 9.27 tells us that the Antichrist will broker a peace treaty between Israel and her enemies. It's a seven-year peace treaty. And the brokering of that peace treaty actually starts the seven-year tribulation, the seven-year countdown toward Armageddon. And that could be weeks, if not months, after the rapture. I personally think it follows the Battle of Gog and Magog, Ezekiel chapter 38, a Russian-Arab coalition that will march on Israel at some point to destroy Israel and push them into the Mediterranean. That is a future war distinct from the Battle of Armageddon. I personally think the reason it's after the rapture is because Israel will be exposed vulnerable now. They'll be extremely vulnerable to their enemies without the U.S. military and the U.S. power to come to their aid. Well, the rapture will neutralize the U.S. as we know it. No longer a world power militarily, economically, politically. That will cause the implosion of the U.S. as we know it. What will happen? The, 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 The enemies of Israel. Russia, who's already in Syria, staged right in Syria, who's already been in coalition and alliance with Iran since going back to the Cold War, suddenly that coalition written about Ezekiel 38 comes together because they see the West is not coming to Israel's aid any longer. They march on Israel. Ezekiel 38 tells us God intervenes for them, miraculously destroys Temporarily, this Russian-Arab military coalition, now you have the opportunity for a new world leader to emerge. He brings peace in the Middle East, what no one's ever been able to do before. Israel 
will feel like we have no choice. Is The U.S. can't protect us. You have the Arabs who have temporarily been destroyed militarily. So they feel like, what choice do we have? We got to come to the table. They sign this peace covenant. That begins the seven-year countdown toward Armageddon. And as a part of the signing of that peace covenant, we know that the Jews will be allowed to rebuild their temple. Because it says in Daniel 9.27 that midway through the week, or the three-and-a-half-year point, he causes the sacrifices to cease. Well, there have been no sacrifices of the Jews, according to the political system, since 70 A.D., 2,000 years. Why? Because they cannot worship without a temple. This is why you see Orthodox Jews at the Wailing Wall today praying. What are they praying for? They're praying for the chance to rebuild their temple because they cannot worship without a temple. So as a part of this covenant, they're allowed to rebuild the temple. We know that to be true because midway through, the Antichrist breaks the peace treaty, causes the sacrifices to cease. That's when he goes into this rebuilt Jewish temple, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The son of perdition proclaims himself to be God, sits in the temple of God, is worshipped as God, declaring himself to be God. Now again, if there is no literal temple, no literal antichrist, no literal tribulation, again, vast portions of scripture has no answer. Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, and so we know the temple has to be rebuilt before the second coming, and that's the temple John sees. In Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, where God gives him a reed to measure it. Again, you can't measure an allegory. You can't measure a symbol of the temple. This is a literal temple, a future temple that will be rebuilt in the tribulation. Notice it says, though, in Revelation 11, 2, don't bother measuring the outer court. It's been given to the Gentiles. I think the reason why is because as a part of this covenant of Daniel 9.27, where they're allowed to rebuild their temple, the Dome of the Rock, the third most holy site of Islam, will be sitting in the middle of the outer court, where it sits today on the Temple Mount. I don't know. It's just speculation. But notice it says in verse 2, leave out the, the outer court outside the temple, and do not measure, for it's been given to the Gentiles. So somehow, what you see is this covenant where you have Jew and Gentile, in this case Muslim, side by side. There's a covenant here of some kind, where the Jews are allowed to rebuild their most holy building at the most holy site in Judaism. And somehow, the Dome of the Rock, the third most holy site in Islam, is allowed to stand with it. I think you have an answer here in verse 2. This is why God tells John not to measure it, um, the outer court. And then it says, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months or three and a half years. And this is the abomination of desolation spoken of by Jesus in Matthew 24. When you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, that's where the Antichrist sits down in the Holy of Holies on the throne, proclaiming himself to be God. This is where Jesus says in Matthew 24, get out of town. Don't even go back to your home. All hell's about to break loose. He says, tribulation the world has never seen. Since the beginning of creation, nor will it ever be seen again. They will tread the holy city, it says in Revelation 11, 2, underfoot for 42 months or for the last three and a half years. 
So this event, right, the beginning. Oh, this is of the beginning of what Jesus of the calls worst. the Great Tribulation, where the first three and a half years are a time of peace and supposed prosperity. And wow, this Antichrist has brought the world together and world unity and global unity. And all of a sudden, he breaks that peace covenant and he turns on the Jews. He begins to persecute them mercilessly. And of course, they will take hiding and refuge in the caves and rocks and dens of Judea. And he says, don't even go back to your house. It's going to be horrible, horrible martyrdom and bloodshed as Satan unleashes all of his hatred on the Jewish people and the people of God that last three and a half years. It says, in the Gentiles, they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now, again, if this is all history, this is what people think. You know, this isn't prophecy. Revelation is just history, and John was just writing in code of the first century, and all this was fulfilled with the Roman invasion of 70 A.D. See, none of this, be, none of this makes any more sense, because he's writing this in 95 A.D., how is he going to measure a temple that was destroyed 25 years earlier? And by the way, uh, the Gentiles didn't trample the city for 42 months or three and a half years. They would do that for the next 2,000 years. So we, we are clearly talking futuristic here, not past. So Heidi, here's the reality. We have to allow Scripture to shape our theology, not take our theology and impose it onto Scripture. And that is, I think, the problem that a lot of people do in modern Christianity. We need to let Scripture form our thoughts instead of taking our thoughts and trying to force fit it onto Scripture. And with all due respect to my all-millennial friends and theologians and pastors, and I mean that very sincerely, wonderful, godly people that would disagree on this part of a Christian doctrine, I, I just think it is so obvious what the Scripture is teaching. Let's just believe what we read. Mm. Well, and I think that goes across the board, right? Because look, we're doing we're doing all kinds of theological and doctrinal backflips right yeah. now in the woke church yeah. to try to make scripture conform to the culture. Oh, yeah. yeah. And this is kind of a similar thing. Speaking of that, I'm going to switch gears mm -hmm. with you a little bit. Uh, we had another mom. So thank you to Stacy from Antioch, California, for that question, and also to Laura from Billings. We had another question come in from a mom named Marie. And she said, Heidi, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are about women in the pastorate. Well, I addressed this question last week and I thought, you know, this is really good for me to ask you while you're on the show, mm -hmm. just, just to talk to listeners. This seems to be, and we're watching a lot of churches right now moving away from the historic teaching of the church, which has been to stick to scripture that women are not to be in positions of pastoral authority and over men in the church. And we're seeing, I think, more in the progressive church, how that is changing. And my heart really was to talk to the women to say, listen, the Bible is actually not hard to understand on this topic. I think what we see happening is a rush to, we're changing a lot of things in the church right now, feeling like we're sort of backward and we somehow need to come up against what the modern culture is calling the patriarchy and why that's an affront to women. And the Bible addresses this topic, right? And it's it's not difficult to understand. So can you walk the listeners through that? A lot of women and men, too, listening to this, I don't know what to do. What do you say? Yeah. So, again, um, Bible, the Bible's not hard to understand, just sometimes hard to believe, Heidi. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, true. Is, it's what I tell people. It really is. And sometimes it's hard to believe 
when we just want to believe something else. And the Bible is very, very clear on this issue, too. Unfortunately, I think it's been misapplied and misinterpreted throughout the years as it applies to women in the church and the role of women in the church. But it really comes back to what do you believe about the Bible? Do you believe the Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God? Or is it really just a book of good ideas? Is it the Word of God, or does it just contain the Word of God? It's what I call the modern cut-and-paste theology. If it just contains the Word of God, then we're free to pick and choose which parts we want to apply and which parts we don't. People do that all the time. But if it really is God's revelation to men and women from every generation for all time, then His truth is timeless. And so one has to discern, again, from Scripture, you know, when the apostles wrote, are we dealing here with a cultural issue or a doctrinal issue? Uh, For example, when Paul would say, greet one another with a holy kiss, we're clearly dealing here with a cultural issue, not a doctrinal issue. Uh, You're not sinning and disobeying the Bible if you don't greet another with a holy kiss and you choose instead a hug or a handshake. Does that make sense? You go to the Middle East today. In other parts of the world, culturally, you might greet somebody with a holy kiss. But in our culture, that might be inappropriate. Okay, so on the other hand, the Bible is a book of of doctrine, what to believe. Remember um, 1 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be perfect or mature fully equipped for every good work. And so uh, all scripture is given for four reasons, for doctrine, what to believe, for reproof, what not to believe, for correction, what not to do, for instruction, what to do. So it tells us what to believe, what not to believe, how to behave, and how not to behave, right? So in this case, when you look at the role of pastor, Paul is very emphatic. He's very clear. He's addressing the qualifications to be a pastor to men. This is why we don't ordain women in our church to be a pastor, to carry that title as pastor. Because the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and then in Titus again, he's clearly addressing it to men. It's really hard for a woman to be the husband of one wife. Uh, Let's just start there. And so this would be a timeless truth. This is a cultural issue, Paul appeals to creation. He actually goes back to the creation of Adam and Eve and appeals to the fact that uh, Adam was created first to set forth a social order of spiritual authority that a male would carry within uh, the family and within the church. And so Paul is appealing to that very thing. He doesn't appeal to culture, but rather creation. And so he very clearly is articulating that men are to have that title of overseer or elder and what amounts to exercising authority to oversee the church in terms of directional decisions, doctrinal statements. And so because it's timeless truth, it doesn't change with culture. And so it really comes down to what do you believe about the Bible? The same churches that ordain women to be pastors often are the same churches that ordain homosexual people to be pastors too. Uh, Very same principles apply because 
they have a cut and paste theology. Well, that was a cultural issue. And, you know, Paul was writing from the cultural bias and the backdrop of his day. So it's okay to ordain women to be pastors, even though it says in the Bible, it's men. Uh, That changes with time. And well, certainly being gay is okay. That's compatible with Christianity, even though the Bible clearly calls it immorality. So it really comes down to what do you believe about the Bible? Is it the Word of God or is it not? Now, now, where I would disagree with a lot of churches who, you know, historically have that very biblical view in terms of men being pastors, is I think it's been horribly misapplied to church life for many generations, and in some cases, just frankly, historic male chauvinism. You know, historically, you know, in churches that are conservative theologically, basically, you know, women can teach other women and kids. You know, heaven forbid they should stand up in a mixed assembly of adults, of men and women, and say something. You know, oh my word, we have, you know, heresy. We've abandoned the Bible. That that is not what the Scripture ever teaches. I can show you in First Corinthians chapter eleven, Heidi, where Paul is outlining how all of us have authority. We have a head that we must submit to, and men have to submit to their head, who is Christ. And women need to submit to their head, who is their husband. But we all have a head to submit to. And that's 1 Corinthians 11.3, where, where Paul articulates this very same thing, saying the head of Christ is God, and the head of the man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man. What he's saying is, look, just like Jesus, who was equal to the Father, absolutely equal in every capacity, To say anything different would be heresy. What Paul is saying, though, is that Jesus had a different function. He willingly chose to submit himself to the Father. And now a man is to submit himself to Christ, and a woman is to submit herself to her husband. Then your head is covered. You're now doing it in submission to authority. Then he goes on. In 1 Corinthians 11, I want you to notice something. He does not forbid a woman from praying or even prophesying. And when he uses that word prophesying, speaking of women, that is called preaching. That's called proclamation. That is called proclaiming divine revelation. And he's writing it in the context of, of a corporate assembly of the body of Christ. He's writing this to the Corinthian church. He does not forbid her from either praying publicly or even prophesying publicly. He simply says, ladies, don't do it without your head covered, meaning don't do it without being submitted to your head, your authority, which would be your husband and your pastor. Okay? So, you know, historically, you know, well, women shouldn't teach men and women shouldn't stand up and proclaim biblical truth in a mixed assembly unless it's just women there, just kids. I just don't think the Bible teaches that at all. When you came and spoke at my church in a Sunday morning service, men and women were there. You were doing it with your head covered. You were, you were, you were proclaiming biblical truth. And you did it while submitted to your husband and submitted to me as the pastor of the church. You weren't doing it in a way that was usurping your head or usurping authority. You weren't standing up there claiming to be a pastor. 
and carrying that title that is reserved for men. You did it biblically and we did too. And I think that that is really the biblical model that the Apostle Paul is articulating for the New Testament church. Wow. So I hope you guys are being blessed and encouraged every time Pastor Phil comes on the show with me. And in fact, every time I talk to him on the phone, I always leave just feeling like I spent time with someone who has spent time with the Lord, who has spent time in the Word. And if you guys are encouraged, I want you to know Pastor Phil has written a couple of books that have been a huge blessing to me, The Weapons of Our Warfare, which I will link back to in the show notes today, all about spiritual warfare and what it means to get off the bench and onto the battlefield and to keep your armor on. Pastor Phil, I know, would tell you the same thing. It's not your pastor's job to suit you up for war. It's your job, and you have to know what it means to put on the full armor of God, and we're going to talk about the spiritual battle that we're in, and so that's uh, that's one of his books. It's wonderful. I was absolutely honored to write an endorsement for it and to write the foreword, and I will link back to that in the show notes today. In the meantime, I hope you guys have a fantastic weekend. Don't forget, next weekend, I'll be at the People's Church in Salem, and also this weekend, tomorrow at the Homeschool Resource Center, my friend Bill Jack from Worldview Academy. Academy is going to be teaching, and you guys are not going to want to miss this. Such an awesome opportunity. Bill's in town, and we thought, you know what, let's get together and invite some parents to bring their kids out, and let's talk about this clash of worldviews that's happening in the culture. So that's happening tomorrow, the 3rd of April at the Firmly Planted Homeschool Resource Center, and I will link back to it in the show notes today. Have a great weekend, everybody, and I will see you back here on Monday at the intersection of faith and culture. For more encouragement, visit me online at thebusymom.com.